The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. Hi, happy Saturday or other day ending in day. This is the best of the gist, the best we have to offer of the week and back through the years. Of the week, let's go back to Monday. I talked about inflation. I heard from, we heard from, a set of octogenarians, you know, the most important people in the country, McConnell, Pelosi, Biden. They all had their own take on what caused inflation. I cut right through it. And, you know, a little bit of a surprise. Mitch McConnell doesn't come out terribly. I mean, you know the way he phrased it, not great, but I wanted to play that for you. And I also wanted to play a best of all time interview with a worst of all time scenario that we were dealing with. It's from September of 2020 and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just died. I had on Jonathan V. Last of The Bulwark to talk about what he called the nightmare scenario. Donald Trump appoints a justice. That justice allows Donald Trump to go on being president despite evidence that he didn't win. Enjoy these two interviews. You'll hear from me again in a moment. And now the spiel. In explaining inflation, Joe Biden has cast the blame on the scourge of the supply chain A and then on a scurrilous villain B. The villain is not an abstract-seeming series of monetary decisions or the interconnected international system of how we get goods and services to the market. It is a real-life, worst guy in the world. You already hate him, James Bond villain, villain. The second big reason for inflation is Vladimir Putin. Nancy Pelosi acknowledged that inflation has many causes, but also agreed that a strong factor was, again, that villain on the Volga, Vladimir Putin. Putin's tax. That's, a, a, that's really Putin's gas hike. That's his gas hike. This, so much of this uh, increase in the gas tax, uh, gas uh, price started uh, uh, weeks leading up to what happened there. It is true that as spokespeople or explainers of policy, the top Democrats lack for a candied tongue Cicero. They're stuck with a speaker of the House and a president whose combined ages are 160. However, whatever Pelosi and Biden are lacking in oratorical abilities at this stage of their careers, they're also hampered by an inconvenient fact. Their message is misleading, inaccurate, incomplete. Let's take Pelosi's claim that inflation has nothing to do with spending. 17 Nobel laureates in economics said that that legislation does not increase inflation. It is non-inflationary because of the way it is written. So when we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. Yes, it is, says Mitch McConnell, who is one year, 330 days younger than Nancy Pelosi and the Senate Minority Leader. At this time last year, Washington Democrats were beginning their quest to dump trillions of dollars in left-wing spending on a recovering economy that already had the preconditions for some inflation. Everybody warned Democrats to pump the brakes. Just weeks earlier, Republicans had already supported a smaller, targeted bipartisan stimulus that had barely started to take effect. 
Even top liberal economists warned Democrats' agenda could spark massive inflation. The consequences for working families have been particularly harsh. Well, who's right? They all are. Mm-t. There is no cause for inflation. There are many causes. Yes, absolutely. The supply chain disruptions have caused some of the inflation we're seeing. But please note that as the supply chain gets repaired, inflation keeps going up. That's odd. Well, not really. If you're not a binary thinker, supply chain is a cause. The war, Putin, absolutely driving prices higher, especially energy prices. So that's a cause. But remember one month ago, before the war, inflation, very high, almost record-setting levels. Now it's record-setting levels. And of course, monetary policy, interest rates, quantitative easing, giant cause of inflation. But Sorry, Speaker Pelosi, government spending has caused some inflation. A significant amount, I'd say. A couple to a few of these percentage points of inflation that are causing percentage points of pain. When Nancy Pelosi says the 14 Nobel-winning economists certified the bill as non-inflationary, great, okay, maybe they're right, but you know what? It doesn't matter because that bill never passed. The spending that was passed was the stimulus, and top economists said it would cause inflation, and it did, in fact, cause inflation in the exact manner that was predicted. Because of this fact, I say, take Mitch McConnell's assessment, which you just heard, Perhaps help him out a little bit, perhaps more than he deserves, by thinking about his incendiary phrases. To dump trillions of dollars in left-wing spending. And put them through the unbiasedinator 2000. And think instead of left-wingers and piling on dumping this money and bleeding hard causes, think he said something like Democrats, guided by their sincere belief in uplifting the immiserated, dot, dot, dot. Also, try not to hoist them on the petard of past endorsements of Trump tax cuts, really every tax cut, of always paying for itself and always boosting the economy, so it doesn't have great credibility on that. And also, if you want to help them along by pulling them back from the broad brushstrokes of the politician that always paint everything as the other party's fault entirely. All right, you do all that, I do think a more fairly presented, contextualized version of what McConnell said is the correct thesis. The Democratic aid package was so big, it significantly contributed to inflation. That's true. I base my opinion on those who don't have a political axe to grind and who, if anything, wish it weren't true, but can't pretend otherwise. Here's Jason Furman, chair of Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, current professor of economics at Harvard. Here he is talking on Josh Barrow's very serious podcast. There's two propositions I'm certain are false, and frankly, I'm embarrassed for the people who advance these propositions. (laughs) One is that spending the amount of money we did created lots of jobs, added a lot to growth, and had zero effect on inflation. And the other proposition that you hear on a different set of television channels is the exact opposite of that, that spending all this money got us lots of inflation and had nothing to do Uh, with jobs or economic growth. The truth is somewhere in between those two. I don't know for sure what the answer is. I have a pretty strong suspicion that, say, the last $500 billion we spent, we got a lot of inflation and not a lot of jobs. And so the cost-benefit on that was bad. So yeah, I think it's just, what was your cost benefit for each dollar? Well, it got worse. The cost for inflation got worse as you added money. And you were just 
getting yourself up against a constraint. There's only so many people that wanted to work. There's only so fast you can expand output. So as you added more and more money, you basically got fewer and fewer jobs for each dollar you added and more and more inflation for each dollar that you added. And that's how to look at it, I think. Much of the stimulus spending was good, necessary, and job saving. And then it got to be overkill and not necessary to fighting unemployment. Less a safety net, more a snare. Furthermore, I believe Nancy Pelosi knows this to be true. We, we don't want to give up jobs in order, you know, we, we want lower unemployment. Some, there will be some inflation that comes with that, but we don't want it. It can't be excessive. Biden, and especially Pelosi, as evidenced by her broaching the subject there, accurately assess that inflation is a trade-off of the spending that kept us out of recession and the spending that got us to lower unemployment and spending that caused inflation. Politics today, defending yourself from your flanks at all times and knowing that modern media refuses to be nuanced, does not think it's wise to emphasize that every policy has trade-offs. It's all good guys versus bad guys, good intentions versus bad intentions, the smart versus the dumb, the caring versus the heartless. Sometimes that's true. A lot of times it isn't. And I think in this case, it isn't. And Biden and Pelosi just can't bring themselves to, or maybe just simply can't say so. So to set up this next interview, it was about 45 days until the election of 2020, which Donald Trump would lose, although he didn't admit it. And that was important because you might have forgotten there was some intimation in the air that he would try to win the election by rigging it. And part of his strategy would be to rely on a Supreme Court of which he had appointed by then a couple members. Amy Coney Barrett, as of time of this taping, was not yet named to be the next Supreme Court justice, but she would be. Now, as you listen to this interview that I did with Jonathan V. Last of The Bulwark, you can think of it in one way. Well, they were worried about this nightmare scenario where the Supreme Court upheld a, a fictional Trump presidency, and that didn't happen. Therefore, shwoo, sweat off the brow. Or you can think of it like this. The nightmare, the nightmare scenario didn't happen. But think about the toll. Think about how uneasy it all made us. And think about the illegitimacy conferred upon the court. Illegitimacy, I think, that we're still feeling by a court where the majority of the Republican appointees were appointed by presidents who weren't even popularly elected. And in the case of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, the spot that was once held by Antonin Scalia and then held open by Mitch McConnell, who I just gave a little credit to in that last segment. Now, let's, let's remember what Mitch did to screw Merrick Garland out of his spot and to ensure that the court would be a 6-3 conservative majority for some time to come. September 2020, this is Jonathan V. Last. So if you want to do a calculation of the nightmare scenario, whatever a nightmare scenario is, it's pretty much a straightforward product, a multiplication. How bad would the nightmare be were it to occur? And what is the probability or possibility of the nightmare? Multiply those two things and you get how concerned we should be for the nightmare scenario. Jonathan V. Last of The Bulwark has laid out a nightmare scenario regarding the Supreme Court. Probability of it happening? Well, uh, Donald J. Trump appoints a conservative justice. That justice gets 
confirmed. And then in a few months, that justice is asked to rule on the election of Donald J. Trump. Huge nightmare. And I got to say, it's not implausible. Jonathan V. Last joins me now. Do you like when I emphasize the V or should I just call you John Last? You know, everybody calls me JVL. So you, you can call me whatever you want to call me. I will answer to it. No problem. So when you wrote this piece about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court just a couple days ago, um, it was premised on ways that Republicans, mostly Republicans, either in the Federalist Society or in the Senate, can thwart what now seems clear to be an eventuality, a Republican Senate taking up the nomination of uh, Donald J. Trump. Is it too late then to avoid this nightmare scenario? Uh, it's never too late until it happens. I, so I wrote that piece the uh, just a couple hours after uh, the word broke that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had, had passed on. And it was not clear that McConnell would have the votes then. Uh, and it was not, if you remember, for the first hour or so, it wasn't even really clear that Republicans would would do this. It wasn't clear they would push ahead. Uh, once it was signaled that they would push ahead, it wasn't clear that they were, maybe they would just announce a nominee, but then say, this is who the nominee is, and we'll let the voters decide. And by Tuesday morning this week, I believe, the McConnell claimed to have had the votes for it. We heard that Martha McSally and Cory Gardner were going to be two fists in on this. Mitt Romney was going to be in. Murkowski and Collins were going to be against uh, to try to protect the, the main seat. And I think we're headed there. Now, if you wanted to, if you wanted to, to try hard to be optimistic about it, the only thing you could say is, well, this would be better than doing it in a lame duck session after they lose the Senate in the White House. That would have been worse. But uh, that's as close as you get to optimism. It's it's really bad. It's really, really, it's bad for everybody. It's going to be bad for whoever the nominee is. It's going to be bad for the institution of the Supreme Court. It's going to be bad for everyone in America who, who wants a, a system of governments which is capable of functioning in a reasonably competent and coherent way over the long term. So I'll relate to my listeners the uh, key sentence in your piece. If Trump and Republicans replace Ginsburg, it will destroy the remaining public legitimacy of the Supreme Court, full stop. I wonder if this is true, if the case, if an election case, if the case of, you know, Donald J. Trump v. Uh, Joe Biden or Donald J. Trump versus the United States or Donald J. Trump versus Florida, if that actual case doesn't make it to the court? Will the court be destroyed if the court isn't asked to rule on the election of Trump? Uh, I I think so. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, there are more destroyed and less destroyed, right? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a sliding scale. This morning, the piece is out in the Atlantic where uh, Barton Yellman has spoken to uh, some legal advisors connected to the Trump campaign, one of which tells him the following. Uh, this is a quote. The state legislatures will say, all right, we've been given this constitutional power. We don't think the results of our own state are accurate. So here's our slate of electors that we think properly reflect the results of our state. What he's talking about is sending a different slate of electors to the Electoral College in battleground states where Republicans control the state legislature. If we wind up in a Bush v. Gore, but it is a Trump v. Biden type situation, 
is the most likely scenario for the Supreme Court having to rule on it. If that's where we are, then we're already a failed state. I mean, if, if you get to the point where the president of the United States is telling state legislatures controlled by his party to send competing sets of electors to the Electoral College, and you have two groups of people showing up demanding that they're, they're the real people representing Wisconsin or the real people representing Florida, this is a failed – this is not what happens in stable democracies. It simply isn't. If it doesn't come to that, if – Joe Biden wins so much apparently on election day that this won't even be a play available to them. If they think they have the votes in the legislatures of um, Michigan and Pennsylvania, but turn out not to, maybe this won't happen. If the suits, if it's close enough for the Trump administration or Trump campaign to pursue suits, but the lower courts uh, smack them down regularly and don't agree with them, maybe we avoid that. Right. Maybe we avoid the court having to rule on this. In that case, what does that say about the legitimacy of the court or if we are living in a failed state? Yeah, well, in that case, we're not at failed state levels. We're merely at a level where the Supreme Court is going to come to be regarded just like every other branch of government, which, mm -hmm. you know, compared with the failed state thing sounds pretty attractive. Right. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he'd say, well, you know, it could be worse. Uh, but it's it's not attractive. It's not attractive at all. Uh, I mean, we've done this weird thing over the years where we have really altered the balance of power constitutionally. And we've expanded the power of the executive branch. We've expanded the power of the judicial branch and, and shrunk the power of the legislative branch, which is probably probably pretty bad for us long term. But even as that's happened... The judicial branch has still been regarded pretty widely as being legitimate. People look at it and they say, OK, I may not like this ruling. I may think that I would like this ruling to be changed at some point, but at least I'm going to respect that this ruling is the law of the land and it has been arrived at at a legitimate by a legitimate manner. And what Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans have done here is is really just break that. I, I don't think there's any other way to say that. And to be very clear, if they had voted on Merrick Garland and then decided to vote on this nominee now, I think that would basically be fine. If they had taken the same the tack they took on Garland and not held a vote and then not held a vote now, that would have been fine. You could make constitutional arguments for one of those eventualities over the other as being preferable. But so long as there's some basic consistency, you could say, OK, this might be suboptimal, but it's not the end of the world. Doing this with a swing seat, the only remedy winds up being a, a wholesale reform of the court. And reforming the court, just because we live in the worst of all possible timelines, is likely to take the form of... Uh, attempted reforms, which will continue to escalate the problem. And this is why the idea of expanding the court to, you know, by another, what, three justices or six justices, however many more justices you want to put on, I think winds up continuing down the very dangerous road that we're on. And the the much better way would be to find a find a mechanism which would allow us to de-emphasize the importance 
of the court to make it less of a flashpoint and make it so that we don't have to have total war every time there's a Supreme Court nomination. And the obvious answer for that, I think, is to regularize the terms. So, you know, the Supreme Court terms are 18 years. You have a regular schedule. This way, even a two-term president doesn't get to have a majority of appointees on the court at any one time. But, you know, I I have given up on hoping that anything good can ever happen in the world we live in. <laughs> well, well, that's good. That at least protects yourself. And as long as you're cosseted. So when we talk about the legitimacy of the court, Gallup last did polling in 2019. So what they ask is, how much trust and confidence do you have in? And they go through the different branches. So the executive branch in 2019 polled at cumulative 55% expressing not much or no confidence at all in the executive branch. The legislative branch, 61%, no confidence at all or not much confidence in the legislative branch, deservedly, I would say. The judicial branch was at only 31%, no confidence. They were at 69%, a great deal of confidence or a fair amount of confidence. So if it's seen as illegitimate, what does that really mean? Does that mean that the judicial branch numbers become the legislative branch numbers? Does that mean something other than the perception of the average American? Or does that mean, and this is what I'm leading up to, even if people don't have confidence in the president and the legislature, both those branches have the means to execute their policy. But the courts and the Supreme Court is fairly dependent, not just on the perception of legitimacy, but the perception by the other two branches of the legitimacy of the court's opinion. Otherwise, we get into the situation where Mr. Taney has made his ruling. Now let us see him enforce it. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And we've already seen this with the legislative branch. Look at the way the Trump administration has just simply refused to comply with directives from the legislature, right? You know, refusing to send witnesses and that saying, well, you know, how are you going to do that? You have the sergeant of arms go and, uh, you know, roust people up off the street and bring them in to, to testify. Why wouldn't you wind up at a point where the Supreme Court could make a ruling and the chief executive, who happens to also be the commander in chief, could then say, no, we're not going to do that? Would you put that past Donald Trump? I, I sure wouldn't. And, you know, legitimacy is one of these things that sounds like just this gauzy, gooey abstraction. And you don't really understand how important it is until it's gone. Because it's the foundation of everything. It is the consent of the governed. And once it goes away, you can't put it back together again. And, you know, I talk about us as a failed state. And we're not yet. It's important to say that this is, you know, I'm, I'm catastrophizing a little bit only because I'm looking down the road to say that you can see how this happens. And even if you don't think it's likely to happen, you know, you look at it and you say, look, we are unlikely to wind up like hungry. If there is a 5% chance that America could wind up like Hungary, that's a big fucking deal. Yeah. You know, like like this is a, a state of affairs that we have not had in America in 140 years. And to go from a 0% chance to a 2% or a 5% chance should scare the living crap out of everybody. Uh, you know, it turns out there are, there are many people who care, but there's like 40% of the country who – and this, this is the key part that worries me. There's 40% of the country who it isn't that they don't care is that this is what they want. And for them, this is the juice. This is what they're signed up for. And they want a strong man, so long as the strong man is their strong man. And I just don't know how you're supposed to have 
a reasonably self-governed republic of 330 million people where 35 to 40 percent of them want to be hungry. Mm -hmm. Isn't one hallmark of a failed state not just dysfunction in the branches of government, but in fact armed insurrection and violent opposition to uh, the failures of the government? So do you predict if the legitimacy of the court um, comes to pass and our state becomes a failed state, is there any way to avoid some sort of actual violent clashes um, between the oppressed and the oppressors? I mean, we're already there. This is, you know, what we have seen over the last four years, uh, the political violence, which has been routinized across the country. And you see this, you know, when you see these giant melees going on from anywhere from Berkeley to Portland to Charlottesville to Chicago, and you got people coming out on both sides dressed with bike helmets and carrying flags that are really, you know, essentially medieval weapons and, you know, chains to whip each other and pepper spray. This this looks like gangs of New York. This does not look like America. This is not this is not a healthy country. When people feel that it is so important that they should be out on the street engaging in open armed conflict with one another. You know, of course you wind up with stuff like the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings. Like this is it isn't a question of like could we get there? We are there right now. What if this all comes to play, and it, it, some of it definitely seems like it's going to, and there's a uh, a court where, you know, Gorsuch is what we would call the swing justice. Do you have any reason to think that Alito, Gorsuch, a new justice, Amy Coney Barrett, let's say, would rule against Trump if a case were to come to it, an election case about who were, was to be the next president? We are very lucky that for the most part, the people on the from both the left and the right who have been appointed to the Supreme Court have been of really high quality. You may not agree with their judicial philosophy and their legal philosophy, but they tend to be very smart people with really good temperaments who are also pretty wise as well. Again, I say this is true of the liberal Supreme Court justices who I disagree with, and um, I think most liberals would be able to say the same thing about the, the conservatives on the court who they disagree with. We've been really, really lucky. We haven't gotten hacks. There, there are no Ted Cruz's on the court. You know, there, there are no Josh Hawley's on the court. Uh, and I think that remains true. So I would not, in the very, very short term, I would not be as concerned about any of the justices uh, behaving in a way befitting of The Apprentice, you know, or reality TV. I think they would take their jobs very seriously. Again, my the near-term concern is over how the public views the court and then where where things spiral out from there. That, that is the type of thing that just, you know, makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. People of my outlook, disposition, say, well, how much more evidence do you need? But maybe, I mean, you're talking about going beyond what the Trump administration has already visited upon the country. You're literally talking about destroying the remaining public legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And conservatives generally didn't denigrate the Supreme Court as they did other branches of government as being inherently flawed because they were a branch of government. The possibility of this happening, is it possible that this could change a mind? Is it possible that this could change a mind of someone who is and has been in the Trump tent, but this is the bridge too far, or I'm going to guess it's 
for the vast majority and maybe for 100 percent of people in for a penny, in for a pound. This will not dissuade anyone who is foursquare behind Trump already. So let me give you a, a two-part answer to this. Uh, the first part is is this. One of the one of the things that has been analytically incorrect about Trump really since he first insulted John McCain was that people kept saying, well, this is the tipping point that will mm -hmm. turn people against him. And then another thing, well, this is the tipping point that will turn people against him. And this this wasn't an incorrect analytical frame. It was just backwards uh, because it turns out that the tipping point came much earlier and it was in the opposite direction. And so the, the tipping point really came quite early when people decided to throw in with him. And once they did, then the sunk cost fallacy sank in. Right. So, it, it, you know, and with every additional price, it's not that it was pushing you towards falling away from him. It was actually binding you more tightly to him because you thought, well, you know, I've already sunk this much of my reputation into it. So the answer is no. Nobody <laughs> is like, going to change like their mind It's like a serial killer who already has 12 bodies to his credit. The disincentive yeah. for the 13th just isn't there. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, in the real world it's it's a big country. We have 330 million people. Uh, to say that nobody is going to turn on Trump is is true as a generalization, but not true in the specific. And you know there might be 10,000 or 70,000 or you know 35,000 people who do turn because of this. And because we are looking at what is a really, really weird election where we have no idea how the mechanics of voting are really going to work and what turnout is going to be, that small number could be dispositive. Jonathan V. Last is the editor of The Bulwark. He writes all the time in a recent column, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the coming political crisis. JVL, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for today's Best Of show. Thank you to Corey Wara, assistant producer, and Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist. And as always, Michelle Pesca, whose actual title is COO of Peachfish Productions. Don't often say that. Umpru depru dupru. Thanks for listening.